Greetings, and welcome to Ed Times Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. I want to talk today about how the gospel shapes our life. Uh, and to get at this, I want us together to ask four questions to put on the overhead. Four questions for today. Number one, uh, what is the gospel? Uh, number two, uh, does, it, does the gospel actually shape your life, uh, change your life? Uh, number three, what does, if it does, then what does a gospel-shaped life look like? And then number four, how does that happen? How does the gospel change and shape your life? So, number one, what is the gospel? And to get at this, it's important to understand, and put it on the overhead as well, uh, the next slide, uh, that the gospel is news. It's not advice. Advice is counsel that you get to help you get something accomplished. Next slide. Uh, news, however, is a report that something has already been accomplished for you. It's already happened uh, in history, and you must respond to it. Uh, now, essentially, uh, all religions, except Yeshua faith, are advice. But Yeshua faith is news. It's gospel. It's good news. Every other religion was founded by a prophet or a sage or a figure who came and said, here's how you find God. But only Yeshua faith was founded by a man who said, I'm the way. I'm God. Come to find you. Not here's the way to God, but I'm God. Come to find you. Uh, I'm God. Come to do what you could not do. Every other religion says, here's advice on what you need to do to connect to God. But Yeshua faith is the exact opposite. Yeshua comes down and says, I'm God, come to find you. Thus the gospel doesn't just come through Yeshua, the gospel is Yeshua. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, Except Messiah. Can you put the next slide, please? First so, Corinthians 2 2. For I was out to not know nothing uh, when I was with you except you, Messiah Yeshua and Him crucified. What Paul's saying is what Yeshua accomplished for us uh, and our reliance on Him. That's the gospel. The gospel takes burdens off. The gospel is not advice, it's news. Advice puts workspace burdens on you, uh, things that you have to do. News takes the burdens off. What Yeshua has already done and already accomplished for you. William Holland, who was a close friend of John and Charles Wesley, who were the founders of the Methodist movement, he became born again while he was reading Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And this is an account of what happened. Put this on the overhead. He says, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud, and at Luther's words, What? Have we nothing to do? No, nothing? but only to accept of him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At that moment, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so full of peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions... Seeing me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. 
When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. The burden came off when he heard Luther say, put this in the overhead again, and heard him say, What have we nothing to do? No, nothing, but only accept of God what was, uh, what was, uh, who's made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At that moment, the penny dropped. He understood the gospel and accepted Yeshua into his life as his Lord, as his Savior. You know, during this very same time period, uh, there was an account, uh, uh, that was in England, there was an account in America of a nearly illiterate farmer named Nathan Cole. He lived in Connecticut in the 1740s during the, the Great Awakening. And he came to this open-air service and he heard George Whitfield preach. And he wrote an account of his conversion. And he said this as part of his account in his diary. He put this on the overhead. He says, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundations were broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. And the reason I'm stressing this point uh, of good news uh, of the gospel, uh, of the finished work of the gospel, uh, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yeshua alone, is because it's so easy for us Bible-believing Messianics and Evangelicals today to fall into one of two forms of what I would call advice-giving, rather than a gospel-shaped life. On the one hand, you've got the traditional conservative form of legalism, and these proponents uh, implicitly teach that unless you're incredibly good and follow all the rules, or, or in our messianic terms, all the mitzvot, uh, unless you live like this, and you do this, and you believe all these things, uh, you're really not a believer. Which means they're putting burdens on. They're putting burdens on you. They're saying, you know, if you bear the, the, these burdens, God will be, will be pleased with you, which of course is losing the gospel. And then there's a, a, a more liberal, evangelical version of, of legalism, which goes like this. Now look, we don't want to talk too much about wrath and blood and judgment and hell and repentance and atonement and all that kind of stuff. Rather, we like to talk about the body of Messiah as being a new people, uh, a new people of God. We're now a community of love and joy and peace and, and justice. And in becoming a Yeshua follower, you join this community. And you become God, part of God's great program to redeem and to renew the world, like the Kunolam. And as great as that sounds, it's actually a new kind of legalism. Why? Because it's putting burdens on you again. Uh, you've got to be inclusive. You've got to be loving and accepting of all. You've got to agree with, with, with my definition of social justice. Charles Wesley got the gospel. One of, the, one of his hymns, he writes this. Put this on the overhead. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast found in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now let me ask you today, is that the language of your heart? Alternatively, if you get into either of these two kinds of legalism, 
It's to say even good things, uh, like uh, Yeshua, to be a Yeshua follower, you've got to love and care for people and do justice and renew the world. That's one form of change, one form of, of works, of burdens, but the gospel takes burdens off. The burdens of your past, the burdens of your guilt, the burdens of your fear of the future, uh, the burdens of, yeah, of you not measuring up, the burdens of, of parental expectations. The gospel removes burdens of works righteousness, of works-based salvation. And the baseline of your life is my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Then you'll have a sense of release. That sense of amazement and, and grace that only comes with getting the gospel right. You'll obey, yes, you'll obey, but you'll obey from a new heart. Not out of fear uh, or guilt or compulsion. You'll only be shaped by the gospel if you have that kind of supernatural, spirit-empowered joy bubbling up within you. And if you have a version of Yeshua faith that doesn't get you there, uh, if you feel you've got to add anything uh, to the atonement by the blood of Messiah, uh, leading you to to freedom from guilt, if you feel you've got to improve on that in any way, whatever you think that improvement is or that addition is, you won't be able to say, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed me. Because you'll be putting burdens on people. So you've got to get the gospel right, which removes our burdens and our chains and frees us to fully follow Yeshua with all your heart and with joy and life and power, which eventually leads to a gospel-shaped life. And this leads to the second question. Does the gospel really shape your life? Because a lot of people say... The gospel doesn't shape your life. The law is what shapes your life. You, the gospel saves you, but then the law directs your life. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 that's, that's the order here. The gospel saves you, but then what actually directs you, how you live, is the law. Now that I'm saved, I'm going to live for and please the Lord. Well, how do I do that? And a lot of people say the answer for that is the law of God. The law tells you how to live. And as far as that goes, that's not incorrect. The law is still our guide. We please God by doing His will. And His will is revealed in His law, the law of God. That's all correct. However, it's not true to say the gospel doesn't shape your life, but only the law does. The scriptures talk all the time about the obedience of the gospel. So this rigid dichotomy, this separation between gospel and law, is both inaccurate and it's impractical. Is a false dichotomy. Let me give you some examples to flesh this out. True story. A young woman uh, started attending a, a Messianic Shabbat service in Los Angeles. And the rabbi there asked her, well, how did you hear about our congregation? And she explained that, well, I work for a TV network in L.A. And at one point, I made a really bad mistake uh, at my job. A, a career-ending mistake. I was sure I was about to be fired. Uh, but my boss, who had a lot of credibility with his supervisors at the TV network, he went in and he took the blame for me. He said, oh, it's my fault. Uh, I didn't train her properly. Uh, I didn't prep her. If you're going to be mad at someone, be mad at me. Uh, but don't fire her. And when he did that, he lost credibility uh, at, at the network. Uh, he lost standing uh, at the company. 
uh, with his boss. He used up some of his social capital. But I kept my job. And so I went back to thank him. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't thank me. But that response didn't satisfy me. So I really pressed him. I said, and I told him, I've had all the time in my past bosses who take credit for good things I've done. That happens all the time. But I've never had a boss take the blame for something bad that I've done. That never happens. That's not human nature. You mean human nature is to take credit for what other people beneath you have, have done. But if you do something wrong, uh, uh, um, if they do something wrong, you blame, if you, feel, you blame the people beneath you. You don't, you don't take the blame. That's, that's human nature. It's a pass off the blame. Always protect number one. Always protect yourself. But here, you did the opposite. You took my blame. I've never seen that before. What made you do that? And so finally he says, okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm a Yeshua follower. I am a Messianic believer. My whole life is based on a man who took the blame for me. And that has shaped how I live. And she says, where do you worship? <laughs> so we told her that's how she started attending this, this Messianic congregation. That is the power of a gospel-shaped life. He was modeling his life on someone who took the blame for him. Let's look at it a bit further of this example. Would you say that this man only did what the law of God required him to do? Remember, it wasn't his fault. It was her fault. But he took the blame anyways. Did the law of God require him to take the blame? No, of course not. The law of God in no way required this. It wasn't the law of God that shaped his life, like in this example. It was the gospel. It was his love and mercy for this co-worker who generated from a new heart, a born-again, regenerated heart. That's what motivated this self-sacrificial act, where he put his own job at risk in order to serve and minister to her. He was modeling the self-sacrificial love of Yeshua. He was modeling a gospel-shaped life. But also, he also had a gospel-shaped motivation for how he acted. The law of God, in contrast, can only give you a standard. It can never give you a motivation. It can't give you a new heart. Here's another example from Galatians 2. The context is we're now in, we're in first century Jewish culture. Uh, the Gentiles in the, in, the, in the Jewish culture are considered unclean. Unclean to even eat with. Even if you're eating kosher food, that's okay, but they're still deemed unclean to eat with the Gentile, even kosher food. And Peter becomes a Messianic Jewish believer in Yeshua, but he's eating and fellowshipping with fellow believers in Antioch who are Gentiles. Uh, no problem. Peter was fine with that. But when other more orthodox Messianic Jewish believers from Jerusalem came up to Antioch, Peter draws back. Uh, Peter separates himself from the Gentile believers, stops eating with them, for fear of being criticized by the more orthodox Jewish believers from Jerusalem. So Paul confronts him to his face and rebukes him. And it's very interesting exactly what Paul says. Uh, he could have said, Peter, you're discriminating against our Gentile brothers who, who were one with in Messiah. You're breaking the no racism law. He could have said that accurately, but he didn't. 
Instead, what did he say? Look at Galatians 2, verse 4. I saw that they were, at, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And in Galatians 2, 15. How can we Jews, who know we're justified by faith alone, not by anything we do, how can we look at our Gentile brothers like this? How can we see ourselves as superior to the Gentiles? Now, what Paul, what's Paul doing at this point? Uh, can he just look at the, at the law of God alone and see that discrimination against other classes and ethnic groups and races is wrong? Yes. You can definitely see that from the law of God. There's plenty of places where the Bible talks about not treating people on the basis of race, not being prejudiced, not being a respecter of persons. Plenty of places, yes. But the gospel takes it to a whole other dimension. Racism isn't just a breaking of the rules. Racism is motivated by something. What's it motivated by? It's motivated by the desire to boost your own sense of superiority. You're insecure yourself. You need to feel better for the other people. All sorts of dark and evil attitudes secretly going on in your heart. And the gospel, which says you're saved by grace alone, you're no better than anybody else. You're a sinner. There's no more amazingly leveling and humbling truth than that. You're the sinner, the same as them. James 1 also talks about the rich and the poor being equal before God. Look at James 1, verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, who they are in Messiah. But the rich should pride in their humiliation, since they'll pass away like the wildflower. There's something unique about the gospel that changes class attitudes and changes racial attitudes. With the gospel, you're able now to look at the law and see, see these truths in a way you could never see them before. You see them in a whole new dimension. Uh, there's a whole new motivation, a deep motivation, because of what Yeshua did for you. It's powerful. It's a gospel-shaped heart, a gospel-shaped life. Another example, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul's taking up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he says this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. For though he was rich, he became, for, you, for your sake, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says, I'm not ordering you. I'm not telling you you have to give only what the law requires. You have to give. You know, the law only requires 10%, right? A tithe. But, but this is a free will offering, Paul says, over and above the tithe. So Paul is not appealing to the law here. Nor to his apostolic authority. So what does he appeal to? He appeals to the gospel. Look, at the, look again, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul is bringing the gospel to bear on the Corinthians. That's how he's motivating them. So again, we see it's not just the law, but even more so the gospel that shapes your life. And we see here by what Paul Paul appeals to, that he knows it's the gospel that's shaping your life. 
You see, if you stick to the law, if you give 10%, you're going to say, I'm doing everything God wants me to do. Everything He requires me to do. But you look at the gospel, and you look at what Yeshua gave. He gave everything. He didn't tithe his blood. Right on the overhead. And for Paul to say here, Yeshua's gen- and then Paul says here, Yeshua's generosity is the basis for your generosity. You, when he says that, that flows right past the 10%. The gospel has specific ethical consequences. Another example. Ephesians 5. Paul's talking to husbands and wives, the famous passage, Ephesians 5, but he's especially talking to husbands. He's exhorting husbands, that only, of course, to be faithful to your wife, uh, uh, but to be cherishing and loving. And they say to them, what can I do, my wife, to help you grow in the Lord and become more and more spiritually beautiful, a radiant bride in Messiah? Now, that picture of marriage that Paul paints here in Ephesians 5, that is far beyond the mere letter of the law. You know, in ancient Israel and throughout the ancient Middle East in general, marriage was more like a business relationship. Uh, you married well for, for, for your family, to provide for them, to produce heirs. Love and romance were secondary at best. But now here in, in Ephesians, Paul's saying, don't be cold to your wife. Love your wife. Minister to your wife. Cherish your wife. Make her your best friend. Lay down your life for her, even as Messiah laid down his life for us, his bride. All of this goes well beyond the requirements of the law. This is an example of using the gospel to shape your life, to look at what Yeshua did for you, and to model your life on him. On the overhead, we'll put this. Paul's saying, look at Yeshua's spousal love for you. Look at how Yeshua loved you, gave himself up for you, sacrificed and laid out his life for you. Now you husbands, go and do likewise for your wives. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what he's saying. Now can you get all that ethical freight and, and spiritual power and practical implications just from the law? No, of course not. You need the law of God, but you need more than the law of God. You need a gospel-shaped and a gospel-empowered life. But yes, the law of God still guides us and still directs us. Of course, we can't be lawless. God forbid, Paul says in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's the overhead. Uh, But it's the gospel that changes your heart and makes you servants and motivates you to love and good deeds and self-sacrifice. One more example. uh, Titus uh, 2.11 The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Notice Paul says it's not the law it's not the law that teaches us to say no to sin. That's not what he says. Paul says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no. Why? Because the true definition of grace is the power of God that enables you to live for Him. That's true grace. 
When you tell me uh, that I'm loved and forgiven despite my terrible past, that's not, that's not a license to sin. No. Paul says, if you truly understood the gospel, if you understood the biblical meaning of what grace really is, costly grace, not cheap grace, grace coming from a crucified Savior, real grace, not the grace taught in America today, but real grace teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, how does that work? There's a lot of ways to say no. You can say, no, because I'll look bad. Uh, no, because I'll be excluded from the social circles I want to be in. Uh, no, because uh, God wouldn't then give me health, wealth, and happiness. Or no, because I'll hate myself in the morning. <laughs> Do you realize what all these motives have in common? They're all self-centered and self-focused. They're all fundamentally selfish. Because they're all about you. No, because they won't, it won't pay off for me in some way. Put this on the overhead. If you have a selfish motive to try to keep yourself from being ungodly, what ungodliness is selfishness, basically it's a house of cards that's going to fall. It's a house divided against itself. You can't use selfish motives to help you from being, to help you be unselfish. If you try to keep yourself from this or that temptation, by saying to yourself, don't do that or you'll be punished, or something bad will happen to you, or others will find out, that will never work in the long run. Instead, you need to say, Yeshua died for me so that I won't do that. For me to do that is like taking Yeshua's blood and traveling on the ground and throwing it back in his face. How can I treat my Savior like that? You see, it's the grace of God that teaches you to say no to ungodliness in a way that now makes you really hate this, your sin. Sin loses its attractive power. It withers only when the gospel is brought to bear on your life. Just beating yourself over the head with, with bad consequences, or telling yourself how dangerous this behavior is, actually just makes you want it more. Because that's the way our evil heart works. Only the gospel withers the desire for sin. Makes you loathe it. Sees the grief it causes God. Makes you weep over it. The law by itself cannot do this. The gospel uniquely saves your life in a way like nothing else can. So we looked at number one, what is the gospel on the overhead? Uh, number two, what, the, what, the, how, what does the gospel shape your life? Now, number three, what does a gospel shaped life look like? First uh, Corinthians six nineteen. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. That's grace. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. So, so towards God and towards everybody around you, you now live a life of deep unselfishness. You don't do things just for yourself. You live for God. You live for others. You live a life of deep unselfishness. Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Andrew Del Banco, uh, teaches at Columbia, he wrote a book recently called The Real American Dream. And he traces the history of American culture into three historic er eras. And he looks at what we were living for as a nation during each of these eras. 
We'll put this on the overhead. He says uh, the first era is the 1700s up to the Civil War. He says basically the Americans lived for God. Then from the Civil War to World War II, it was nationhood. And then from World War II to the present, it's self. So it's God, nation, self. So he says, in the beginning, people who came to America were largely animated and motivated by the Judeo-Christian biblical understanding of life. Why do we come to America? Why why, why do we work? Why do we raise our families? Uh, How and why do we form communities and, and colleges and governments and congregations? All for the glory of God. But then by the mid-1800s, he says in his book, America had started to become secularized. And the country itself, the nationhood, patriotism, was put in place of God uh, in American culture. And the idea is that democracy is what's going to make the world a better place. We have a manifest destiny to reach the Pacific Ocean. We're the greatest country in the world. This lasts up to about the end of World War II. Yeah, people still believed in God. But patriotism and national pride defined our culture now during this historic phase. And now in the modern era, after World War II, most people no longer live for God or for country, but for self. We're living for ourselves. And he writes this, and I'm going to put it on the overhead. Americans first believed that America had meaning and our life had a purpose because we believed in and lived for the glory of God. That later changed to a narrative of scientific and moral progress, and particularly of democratic values, promoted by, by, in the world by the growth of the United States. However, today, hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of the self alone. So that America's history of hope is now one of diminution. The modern self-fulfillment narrative has created a cultural crisis. To say the meaning of life is mere self-fulfillment cannot give a society the resources necessary to create a cohesive, healthy culture. A cultural narrative must give people a basis for values and a reason for sacrifice in living and dying. The self-fulfillment narrative cannot do that. You hear what he's saying? In a culture to thrive, uh, even to survive long term, people have got to have something more important than their own happiness and their own self-interest. Got to have something w- worth dying for, something worth sacrificing for, or else we can't be a cohesive society. We can't have a sustainable culture. So we have to see that my happiness and my fulfillment can't be the most important thing. And that's why American culture is fragmenting today. There has to be something more important uh, than, than just my life, uh, being built around me and all about me. So, the answer is what? We need to get back to religion, right? Why don't people see we simply need to get back to the religion? Why? Because religion does tend to make people less selfish. So in his book, he asks this question, you know, maybe you just need to get back to religion, become more communal, uh, more charitable, but there's a problem there. There's another recent book that speaks to, to this issue, written by Jonathan Haid, who is a psychologist, and the book is called The Righteous Mind. And he looks at Israel, Israeli kibbutzes, fascinating book. Uh, he documents, yes, secularism produces a mindset where there's nothing that I really live for other than my own happiness. 
In a word, secularism makes people selfish. But in this book, he studies kibbutzes in Israel, both secular and religious ones, and the research shows that the most secular ones don't last or don't do well. Why? Because the research has shown that religion creates unselfishness. Because religion says, you've got to give to the poor. Uh, you've got to help your fellow man. Religion makes you less selfish than secularism. But here's the problem. It also tends to make you more tribal, he says. And that's a problem. Religion can, make, can create haughtiness. Uh, religion can cause you to think of others as the infidel. Religion can make you view non-believers as, as subhuman. So secularism, he says, makes us selfish. And religion makes us tribal. And because of these two phenomena, we have a declining society. We're fragmenting, we're polarized, we're balkanized, we're disintegrating due to both secularism and a wrong type of religion. But the uniqueness of Yeshua faith is that it fulfills you and yet humbles you at the same time. It fulfills you because you have something bigger than yourself to live for. It therefore makes you less selfish. But at the same time, it's the humility of the gospel. It's the knowledge that you are a sinner, saved by grace, that levels you and pulls away your pride and makes you less tribal. It turns you outward, not inward. It helps you to look to others, talking to them about the truth, but doing it in love, serving others, sacrificing for others. So secularism makes you selfish. Religion makes you tribal. But Yeshua followers, we're ultimately citizens of the, of the city of God. But it also makes you great citizens of the city of man at the same time. Why? Because you want to serve and love and sacrifice for your neighbor. We should be the ones of whom people say our character, our attitude, even towards those who disagree with us, our unselfishness is astonishing. A gospel-shaped life should also be a cultured, cultural-shaping life. And if we really start living that way, it will become clear to more and more people that that is what we need. Otherwise, our secular, me-centered, amoral society will continue to fragment and disintegrate. People don't want to go back to religion because they see tribalism and unhaughtiness, but they fail to see the difference between religion and true Yeshua faith. The difference between religion and the gospel. We have to live and model the effort to show forth this difference. So we have number one, what is the gospel? And number two, how does it shape our life on the overhead, please? And number three, how do, what does the gospel shape life look like? And then finally, number four, how does the gospel change your life? How does it shape your life? Let's look at a number of examples here of how a gospel-shaped life is different from either a legalistic or a relativistic way of life. Because if you take legalism uh, and relativism uh, and the gospel, you see there are three different ways to live in every area of life. Let's start with uh, discouragement and depression. Assume you're really cast down. You're discouraged, you're despondent. There's three ways to go. The legalist, the moralist, says, you must be doing something wrong. Repent. Repent of all known sin. Find out what you're doing wrong and repent. The relativist would say, you need to build yourself up. You have low self-esteem. Indulge your deepest desires. 
Do whatever it takes to make you happy. Find and hang out with all the people who agree with you and affirm you in your, in your choices. So the moral, the put this on the overhead, the moralist focuses on behavior, says repent. The relativist focuses on feelings, says enjoy yourself. But the gospel, from the next overhead, but the gospel believing person focuses on the heart. It says something in your life has become more important to you than God. Whatever that is, it's become your pseudo-savior. It's a form of works righteousness. Discover what this idol is. It's the reason why you're despondent. Because you're giving this thing more control over your life than that's proper and appropriate if you're saved by grace. The gospel goes right to the heart. Not just your subjective feelings or your external behavior. Another example. Parents. If you come from a more traditional culture, you'll never overcome your need to live up to your parents' expectations. I'm going to be hearing from a Messianic rabbi about this young woman in his congregation, an Asian-American woman, whose parents wanted her to become a world-class concert violinist. She tried and tried and tried. She could never make it. And she was, just, she was so depressed, she finally was placed in a mental institute. And the rabbi said, she could be released from that mental institution tomorrow if she would simply get her parents out from the center of her life and put Yeshua there. The fact of the matter is, many of us are afraid of our parents' expectations. And then, of course, here's the other extreme. Many of us run in the opposite direction and then just rebel against our parents. So the legalist is bound by their parents' expectations, like in many uh, Asian-American cultures. Their activist in more Western cultures just, just rejects their parents. The gospel frees us from both making our parents' expectations into an idol and from the anger that hyper-independent, individualistic Western people feel against the authority of their parents. If you're always angry at your parents, always feel guilty for not measuring up to, your, to, to their plans for you, you're not putting the gospel in the center of your life. But if Yeshua becomes your Lord, and thus God becomes your Father, and thus God's love becomes the main thing in your life, that frees you. It frees you to both love your parents without worshiping them, and to forgive your parents without hating them. Another example. Race. Until you get the gospel deep in your heart, it's going to be very hard not to feel racially superior to other groups. Here's a kind of funny, light-hearted example. Rabbi's doing a wedding between a white, Ashkenazi, European Jew and a Sephardic, Middle Eastern, dark-skinned, Yemenite Jew. The wedding's scheduled for 2 o'clock. By 2 o'clock, every member of the white, Ashkenazi, European Jewish family's there. All their friends on their side of the aisle are there. No one from the Middle Eastern, Sephardic side of the wedding is there. No one. The Yemenite bride, she's not even there. The bridal party's not there yet. About 2.30 p.m., a few members of the Yemenite family start to trickle in. By 3 o'clock, about half of them are there. And looking across the aisle, the non-white folk can see and feel all the white folk just fuming at them. And both sides start to moralize. 
They moralize their cultural differences. The white people are saying, these people are punctual. They have no concept of time, no regard for schedules. No wonder they've got all the problems they do. No wonder they can't get good jobs. No wonder the Middle East was a basket case. <laughs> In other words, the groom's family is taking something, which is their Northern European, American approach to time, and turning it into a moral absolute, a moral virtue, and using it to judge other cultures. Meanwhile, the Middle Eastern Yemenite bride's family is saying, these white people are so uptight. <laughs> They're the oppressors. Nor do the Europeans are historically the oppressors. They can't enjoy life. Everything has to fit in their rigid schedules. They just need to chill out. So both sides are taking their cultural differences and their cultural views about time and punctuality and turning them into moral absolutes and value judgments. But it's not. Unless the gospel goes in really deep. You know, if you're a legalist, you'll turn cultural differences into your own standard of righteousness. Automatically say your culture is superior. On the other side, you can be a relativist and think all cultures are the same, all cultures are wonderful, all cultures are, 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 are virtuous, even ones with very questionable practices, like child sacrifice in the ancient times, or about modern cultural things like female genital mutilation. But the gospel pulls you out both of your paternalism and tribalism on the one hand, and your relativism on the other hand, and gives you a truth by which you can judge all cultural differences. Because some things about every culture are right, and some things about every culture are wrong. And only the gospel takes you outside of your culture and allows you to faithfully and truthfully evaluate what is from God and what's not. One more example. Humor. One way you can tell if someone doesn't get the gospel is that, they're, is that they're very religious and legalistic and have no sense of humor. Pharisees, they go, the more they do, they go around listening to people saying, that's not funny. <laughs> then the other hand is there's the relativist humor, which is very cynical, uh, very skeptical, very bitter, very biting humor, very cutting towards those they don't like. You see them all the time in late night TV, right? <laughs> which shows in the end, everyone is self-righteous. Even so-called open-minded people. Because they say, I'm open-minded. I hate bigots. I hate self-righteous people. I can't stand them. I'm so much better than them. I feel so superior to them. Good thing I'm so open-minded. <laughs> but the gospel takes all that away. Because the gospel humbles you and makes you able to laugh at yourself. Which is the only kind of humor that's really funny. <laughs> the only kind of humor that's really healing. And you can laugh at yourself while, while cutting others down or even cutting yourselves down. You can make jokes without, without, without any kind of underlying bitterness or anger. The gospel makes you not think too much of yourself or too little of yourself, but just think of yourself, Wes. You're, you, you're content in who you are in Messiah. So you're no longer obsessed with yourself or trying to steal acceptance from others. So you can poke fun at yourself without trying to, to bring yourself down. And as a result, you're, you're finally funny. So let's wrap this up. Here's a quote uh, in the overhead. It's from uh, Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan. He wrote this book, The Explosive Power of a New Affection. He says this, 
There's that one personal transformation of the heart. That's, uh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, there's not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new one. He says, you want to transform yourself? You want to be shaped differently? You want to become a new kind of person? It's not enough just to work on the will. It's not enough just to beat yourself up and say, I've got to change, or else I'll disappoint people, or I'll have a problem, or I'll, I'll fail at this goal. No. He says the heart's desire for a particular object of beauty and joy can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. So the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection the only way to get rid of some drive, let's say, let's say, uh, workaholism, or acceptance uh, by the opposite sex, or wealth, or power, whatever your idol is, that's distorting your life, the only way you can really change is through worship. It's not just loving Yeshua in some kind, of, some kind of abstract, cold, intellectual way, but by giving and experiencing the love of Messiah, seeing Him as the ultimate beauty, and worshiping Him. Let me give you an example of how this works. I was talking recently to another Messianic rabbi. He's telling me about a woman uh, in her 40s who lived in this kind of run-down trailer park. She, she was very beautiful as a younger woman, but she used to hang out with all these criminal gangs. And she was always pretty, but always created attention from, other, from guys, and she became addicted to getting their approval. She always had to have a man loving her for her to feel good about herself. So uh, she also became a drug addict, uh, went to jail, ruined her life. When she got out, ended up in this trailer park. But one day she stumbled into this local Messianic congregation, heard the gospel, believed it, got saved. Meanwhile, at the same time, she had been going to this secular counselor. And the counselor had rightly identified her idolatry of men. The counselor told her, you feel you've always got to have some guy or else you're nothing. A man's got to love me or I'm nothing, you say. So the counselor told her to stop basing her identity on men. The counselor said, you must not base your self-worth and your identity on men. Find some alternative. You know, get a job. Become a financially independent woman. Become a career woman. Uh, be proud of the fact that you're an independent career woman. Let your identity rest in that. And this woman, just recently saved, she responded like this. Uh, let me get this straight. You want me to get rid of a female idolatry and adopt a male idolatry of career and money. <laughs> you want me to stop being so fragile by basing my salvation on men, whereby if a man drops me, I'm, uh, I fall apart. And instead, you want me to base my salvation on my career and making money. So anything goes wrong with my business, I fall apart. <laughs> You just want me to replace one fragile idol with another more politically correct idol. <laughs> but instead, what she did, she took the gospel and applied it to her life. She based on Colossians 3, 3 in the overhead. For you've died, and your life is now hidden in Messiah, with Messiah in God. Messiah is our life. And she meditated on these verses. 
And when she see a guy that uh, looking at her that she liked, she then she would start to fall back into her old idolatry. She'd look at him and she'd think to herself under her breath, "Yeah, I'd love to be married, but you're not my life. Yeshua is my life. Men are not my life anymore. Messiah is my life." And when she fixed that truth, deep down in her heart, she got the freedom to talk to this guy without automatically just falling for him. Why? Because she had begun to live a gospel-shaped life. That's the power of the gospel to change and shape your life. It's time go and do likewise. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I have the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your gospel. Lord, we thank you. The Yeshua, Yeshua alone gives me a new heart and transforms my life and empowers me to live for you. Lord, we thank you that the gospel isn't advice about what things we have to do. But it's good news about what you, Yeshua, have already done. Help us, Lord, to die to our myself, to press into you more and more, to worship you, to live for you, so that your gospel, your good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua more and more shapes and molds and transforms my life. Helping the Lord to see that my righteousness cannot save me. But if I turn from my sin, and I turn from myself. And I submit my life to you, Yeshua. You give us your righteousness. You clothe me with your righteousness. And change me from the inside out. Lord, help the gospel today to change and shape my life. For we serve the one who took the blame for me. Who became poor for me. Who gave it all for me. Who humbled himself for me. Who laid down his life for me. Lord, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. Lord, I belong to you. So help me to put away all my idols. For I've died and my life is now hidden with you, Yeshua. You are my life. My chains fall off. My heart is free. Lord, so this day, I choose to rise and go forth and follow Thee. I pray this all in Your name, Yeshua, B'Shem Yeshua, O name, Shabbat Shalom.